1: Welcome to the New Books in Popular Culture podcast. My name is Matt Sinkowitz. I'm Assistant Professor of Communication and International Studies at Boston College, and I am the new host of this channel. Uh, I'll have a co-host joining me sometimes, and sometimes he'll be taking over the show by himself. Uh, That's Nick Marks of Colorado State. Uh, He's not on today, but you'll probably be hearing from him shortly if you subscribe to the channel. Uh, If you're interested, if you have suggestions, questions about the podcast, uh, please send me a tweet at Media Studied, M-E-D-I-A-S-T-U-D-I-E-D. Uh, if there's a book that you want talked about or if you have questions about uh, this week's podcast, please feel free to send me a tweet. Uh, we have a guest today on the show, uh, Professor Patrick Burkhardt, who is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M, and he has a new book coming out this January from MIT Press. Uh, it's called Pirate Politics, the New Information Policy Contest. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be with you. So, Patrick, this is uh, this is your second book, and uh, both of them deal with these these concerns of international uh, intellectual property rights. Can you tell us how you came to be sort of interested in the subject?
0: Absolutely. Well, if you count from digital music wars, it's actually the third book, and yeah. uh, there's a there's the reason I mention it is because there's a there's continuity through all three. I think. Hmm. I I was uh, real active in local music scenes and community media scenes as uh, a young person, and uh, uh, through college and grad school, participated in community media like uh, college radio and cable access television. And... Uh, you know, really grew up around creative cultures and participative cultures that uh, involved media. And uh, out of grad school, my friend Tom McCourt and I realized that uh, there was a movement afoot um, uh, in response to Napster, particularly, uh, that really uh, could work as a diminishing uh, factor on a lot of the music scenes that uh, uh, we both loved and enjoyed, particularly local media, uh, local radio. And so we endeavored to um, do an overall survey of the music industry and wrote Digital Music Wars. Uh, ownership and control of the Celestial Jukebox. And it was a way of looking at how the music industry really remapped from um, an old line, um, traditional, um, you know, um, production and distribution outfit to much more of a software and e-business based model. And this is old news today, but when we were working on the project in 2004, we were really just seeing the early emergence of uh, music industry participation in, in online music distribution. Um, fast forwarding to 2010, um, the celestial jukebox model of distribution of digital media uh, had firmly taken hold, and um, online participatory cultures were under attack, concerted attack, by the major um, music labels and, and Hollywood studios. And so my second book project, Music and Cyber Liberties, was a chance to look at how music fans in particular were and 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 other other kinds of participatory fan cultures uh were responding to some of the incredible power grabs in the area of copyright and pat software patents and um you know other very powerful uh, legal mechanisms for consolidating digital markets uh, and looking at how how, how fans and uh, indie labels and indie music groups were uh, organizing in response to the corporate, the corporate uh, Celestial Jukebox model. And because it was a U.S.-centric study, it could only go so far in describing and explaining some of what we all came to notice uh, around 2009 when um, the Pirate Bay uh, community in Sweden transformed itself into a political party in order to um, challenge some of the same some of the same processes going on in Europe. So as soon as I finished Music and Cyber Liberties, I realized I had to go see what was going on in Sweden. Because here, the kids were taking back their uh, participatory cultures in ways that uh, many of us couldn't have imagined 10 years ago.
1: Hmm. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit or talk us through the Celestial Jukebox model and let us know how the Pirates Bay sort of served as a reaction to it?
0: Sure. Celestial Jukebox model describes how the music and entertainment industries together presented the case for a commercial internet distribution platform, uh, but they called it the information, it was paired with this notion of information superhighway that promoted the privatization of the internet and its deregulation in um, 19, uh, in the 1990s. So, Celestial Jukebox was really a PR campaign, uh, term for the promise of a digital, digitally distributed media environment, uh, such as what we see now. Um, but what Tom and I took pains to do in Digital Music Wars book was to show how it's a, it's, it's, it's created around a legal and a technical infrastructure that are very much intermeshing. And on the technical side, you have digital rights management, which uh, locks down copies of licensed or um, yeah licensed licensed copies of software or media. And its legal counterpart is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which provides special legal protections for media owners and and. Uh, licensors who use copy protections, and there's a whole list of technologies that plug into DRM in one way or another. Um, but it was that infrastructure combined with uh, business as usual on the ownership side of uh, media production and distribution uh, that leads us to the Celestial Jukebox, which is basically a monopoly uh, or oligopoly of services um, that are um, catered to providing on-demand um, access to video and music and uh, books, et cetera. So, a very locked-down, corporatized model of digital distribution, uh, very much on, um, on an older uh, model of uh, pay-per-view, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that's the outline of the Celestial Jukebox, and uh, it really locks out participation from uh, non-major label and um, non-media monopolists. And so the Pirate Bay, among other places, um, gathered together people who were um, anxious to bypass digital distribution on the uh, official model. And the Pirate Bay community became a place where um, uh, hackers and file sharers and um, people without access to digital media through the Celestial Jukebox model um, gathered and uh, shared tips and tricks for getting access to uh, unavailable or uh, extremely expensive material, Um, books and, and music and movies particularly. You know, to the to the dismay of the culture industries who were uh, who were all in on the celestial jukebox model for mm-hmm. the most part.
1: Now, now you uh, you described it as people who didn't have access, uh, and I'm I'm sure that's not what the uh, what the corporate side of this tends to say, right? They say it's people who could have it, but they don't want to pay for it. Oh. Is it is it a fair? I mean, is there truth mm-hmm. to, to both sides of that, or, or or is that really? Oh, of course, oh. of course,
0: there is however and you may have noticed this yourself in your in your in your field work and in your in your international experiences mm-hmm. there's a great deal of content that we have access to in the united states online that is uh ip blocked uh the domains are um, international domains are blocked from receiving a lot of the online content such as what you might find on a netflix mm-hmm. or in an itunes store and I think there are plenty of studies of piracy, which suggest strongly that um, people who trade files uh, often do so in order. In states, at least, they do so in order to decide what they want to what they want to purchase later. So they're tasting. Uh, but in the international contexts, uh, a lot of these catalog items aren't even available for legitimate purchase. So you have to use other means to acquire them.
1: Hmm. Now, from uh, an American perspective, sort of being steeped in, in our notions of, of intellectual property, uh, what's maybe the most amazing to to a sort of uh, uh, somebody who's new to this story uh, is the idea that something like the the Pirate Bay would ultimately uh, be the springboard for a, a real political party. Uh, in some ways, this might uh, seem to. Uh, uh, an outside perspective to be sort of a really limited uh, issue to be building your uh, your political uh, platform on, but in fact they've they've been quite successful in, in doing so. Uh, how did how did this happen? How did the Pirate Bay go from being a, a place to trade movies and and music to uh, a, an actual political platform?
0: Hmm. Well, I think. I had the I, I was I was driven by this by this question uh um, starting three years ago and uh I really thought uh, not only why did it happen at all, but why did it happen in Sweden of all places? Um but that's where the servers were hosted for the Pirate Bay and the servers were the target of police raids in uh two thousand and nine I wanna say. Um, and basically disrupted uh, under the behest of um, um, U.S. copyright owners who were working through diplomatic and international channels to uh, basically take the Pirate Bay offline for good. And it was the confluence of the Pirate Bay raids and the passage of several European wide directives relating to um, um, intellectual property online, as well as some national level laws that permitted police surveillance of international. Internet traffic that really, those three things together combined in such a way that young people who were paying attention uh, were able to discern a um, an attack against a uh, an internet sharing culture uh, that had been flourishing for the last 10 years or more since Sweden went online and uh, in a big way with broadband uh, with broadband infrastructure development and the cyber culture in Sweden is quite strong and it's quite intertwined with the creative creative classes and the creative cultures in the country it's a very cosmopolitan and, uh, and high-tech techno culture I call it and uh, You know, all of these all of these all of these I wanted to say organizations. um, There were a lot of organizations involved, but it was more like a civil society movement uh, that developed in in response as a way to protect. You know, this um, this 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 cultural field that had been. Developing in Sweden for ten or fifteen years or more, uh, Nancy Bain, by the way, has written some interesting stuff on the Swedish music and and film scenes, um, and the, the the formalization of the pirate party of Sweden from the interest groups and. Um, um, and affinity groups surrounding the Pirate Bay, uh, institutionalized the pirate party. And at first they were gunning just for symbolic, um, uh, appearances on local and municipal ballots in order to make a standing and, uh, uh, demonstrate that they were actually, uh, engaged, interested citizens who had something to say about information policy in the European Union. And I think they really got attention when they won a seat on the European Parliament uh, shortly after forming and suddenly uh, found themselves participating in European Union-level uh, negotiations over region-wide copyright and trade policy related to the European common market. And they very quickly went from, I would say, a, uh, um, a milieu into a, uh, into a transnational operation. And very quickly after that, we started seeing other pirate parties in the region springing up, beginning in Germany, where they attained a lot more national-level traction. Uh, and participated very broadly in the state-level elections in the last five years. And now we see over 50 pirate parties in Europe, some of which are more institutionalized than others, but all of them are interconnected. And they're sharing information and uh, news and gossip about the changing Shape of um, the techno culture in Europe uh, and uh, how to engage against in, engage against some of the new threats that they perceive to um, not only file sharing but uh, privacy and uh, access to information online, so they 've really diversified uh, their scope in the last few years and transnationalized. And remember, this is a youth movement. Most of the participants in pirate politics, um, in any formal way, are kids. We might think of them as kids, you know, mostly under the age of 20.
1: And that that seems to be a challenge for a political movement. Though is is there a sense that the uh, parties will grow, and that'll cease to be the case? That uh, that as sort of people who are young members now uh, mature, they'll remain with the party, or is it something that needs to kind of constantly renew itself from from the younger groups? That's a good question.
0: Great question. Uh, my sense is that um, the younger people who were instigators will probably continue with it. Of course. You know, parliamentary politics in some of the smaller, smaller countries of the world uh, can be quite choppy in mm-hmm. terms of uh, the relative successes and failures of parties across the political spectrum. Uh, I try to avoid that kind of question and focus instead on some of the historical continuities between the pirate politics and ecological politics, which I think... Um, shares shares a lot of affinities with with this movement um and the uh, you know the connections have been drawn before between cyber liberties and digital rights and ecology uh james boyle in, in particular a law scholar has uh, uh you know written quite extensively about the philosophical connections between um, pres- preservation of a cultural commons and the preservation of the, of the natural um, environment. So I look for those connections where I can find them between ecological thinking of the Green Party style and cultural environmentalism of the Pirate Party style, and I do see quite a few similarities. Um, and one similarity in particular, I thought I might mention to you because when I stumbled upon it in Sweden, doing my uh, some of my research there on the legal traditions of that country, uh, it became clear to me right away that uh, there is a, a linkage between cultural heritage and the legal traditions um, of ancient Swedes and contemporary Swedes. And one of the linkages that I Discovered is this notion of retin, which means every man's right to roam and wander the co- countryside of Sweden without being stopped um, by a private property owner. And it's true that in that country and many other Nordic countries, I should say three other Nordic countries, and even the UK, um, there are public rights of access to private property, such that uh, wandering and uh, hiking and skiing and boating um, private lands and and waters uh, aren't illegal activities as long as you're not despoiling them and as long as you aren't invading anybody else's privacy Mm -hmm. in the process. And I see pirate politics as pushing this tradition of every man's right to roam into cyberspace. And if you look at some of the arguments that the pirates make with respect to accusations of theft, for example, of intellectual property, you can trace a lot of the, if not the rhetoric, certainly the um, implications of their arguments about sharing culture um, to the ancient traditions of sharing land.
1: I mean, that's it's a wonderful metaphor and uh, an excellent connection. Uh, it gets, of course, complicated, as you note uh, throughout the book, uh, in that it, it does not remain sort of a Swedish-only issue, uh, that, of course, a lot of the intellectual property at question is foreign, much of it is American, uh, and America has been sort of notoriously heavy-handed uh, in its uh, efforts to influence the rest of the world. Uh, could you talk to me about the kind of the, the coming together of that local Swedish ethic that you described so nicely? Uh, and then the idea of of sort of America sending over uh, people to defend its interests.
0: Mm. Well, one of the reasons we know what we know about American lobbying and I should say North American U.S. lobbying of the European Union states in the areas of intellectual property, we know because of WikiLeaks Mm. and we know what we know because... um, Whistleblowers have essentially alerted um, activist communities to uh, the back channel ways that the the culture industries in the United States uh, operate and influence their trading negotiate their their trading partners and and negotiators uh, in around the rest of the world. So I draw upon WikiLeaks um, diplomatic cable dumps in a couple of places in order to show that. Um, the, the The pressure on the Pirate Bay uh, uh, specifically was uh, more or less an executive branch uh, exertion uh, straight straight across the Atlantic um, but more generally still, I think that when you look at the different European directives that relate to copyright and relate to um, uh, Things like data retention, uh, which affects the ability of online uh, online uh, portal users, for instance, to remain anonymous or to have their their privacy uh, protected. When you look at the the diminishment of cyber liberty, liberties that are being baked into the new trade agreements, uh, that uh, affect. Uh, North America and Europe and um, Southeast Asia, uh, you see that at an executive level there's a negotiation of negotiation away of privacy, free speech, and access to knowledge and culture um, because trade agreements are essentially containers for. Multilateral and plurilateral reforms to intellectual property laws. And then pirate politics. I take some trouble and time in, in the book to elaborate how there are, um, um, there's a, there's a, there's what I call a a ratchet and a fulcrum effect to intellectual property laws. Every new trade agreement ratchets up the level of protections available for copyright owners while diminishing uh, the rights of non-owners. There's also a trade fulcrum that I describe as exerting pressure, negotiating pressure on smaller countries uh, and, um, and, and smaller coalitions um, by, the United States and our trade and our, and our economic allies. And so through a combination of trade negotiations and incremental, uh, movements and the maximum maximization of copyright protections, uh, there's a globalization effect of stronger and stronger protections for owners and weaker and weaker legal recourses for, um, consumers of culture, (laughs) which is the rest of us, which is all of us. Um, So uh, it gets a little bit wonkish, but uh, if you look at the at the trade level, uh, you see quite clearly that there is a, uh, an imbalance between Hollywood and the rest of the world and that they are exploiting this imbalance aggressively through, um, through uh, trade negotiations and also increasingly through the police uh, and international um, uh, policing agencies, which have been delegated uh, final responsibilities for enforcing a lot of infringement
1: claims. Mm. Uh, in regards to the, the the swedish uh context i mean is there a a strong uh political movement there that sort of echoes that american uh very tough intellectual property standard is that where the pirate party comes from or is it mostly trying to argue against north america
0: well make no mistake sweden is uh officially allied with the United States and um, other European countries who are net exporters of intellectual property. Sweden and France and the UK are the only three, three European countries that export more in terms of economic value in cultural goods and services than what they import. And so on paper, Sweden looks like an IP maximalist, like the United States. And uh, formally speaking, the Swedish government has behaved just as you would expect them to behave as an exporter. So, you know, the pirates are counter hegemonic in their own country, as well as internationally speaking, and uh, they see an alternative system altogether for uh, handling intellectual property claims. I mean, one of the key platform planks of the pirates is the reduction of term of copyrights, you know, from what it is now, which is beyond the lifespan of the average human being, uh, to 10 years. They also have other ideas about restricting copyright ownership to uh, promote the uh, incorporation of software patents, for example uh, more quickly into uh, into new um, into new uh, innovations and um, making new derivative works out of uh, protected intellectual property um, you know, they 're looking for practical ways to in, in, encourage innovation um, so they 're not rejecting entirely the property rights claims of media industries. In fact, they themselves, many of many pirates, are employed in um, the IP sector, be it software or web media or music or whatever. They just want to tweak the terms so that the monopolists uh, are forced to let go a little bit and create a little bit more slack in the system.
1: Hmm. Uh, I think many listeners might be somewhat surprised to hear that that Sweden is actually a net, a net uh, exporter uh, in terms of IP. W- what is the uh, what is the the uh, w- what are they exporting so much of?
0: A lot of film, a lot of music, a lot of software, and um, they have uh, also a very flourishing small and medium sized. Um, Sector of uh, enterprises uh, producing media. And these are mostly uh, centered around um, the major cities and university towns. But, um, you know, as a smaller country, they're forced to export uh, for growth, and, um, you know, they do so as well in sectors that require a lot of engineering knowledge. So, automotive. Um, aerospace uh, chemical, etc uh, you know sweden 's right up there in terms of uh, um, net exporters of um, goods and services that rely on engineering knowledge. Hmm.
1: Now, one of the things I I like so much about this book is that it simultaneously offers sort of this very clear history of this really interesting phenomenon, but it's also rather theoretically rich. Uh, And I'd like to at least uh, take a a moment out of our discussion here to to give you an opportunity to talk through a little bit of this theory, Uh, particularly the theory of communicative action, which is sort of one of the guiding uh, lenses through which you, you understand pirate politics. Can you tell us uh, a, a little bit about this theory uh, and then how, how does it inform your work about the Pirates
0: sure I'll mention two things uh, at the top and one is that I was influenced by new social movement theory as a as a student uh, and particularly that form of uh, new social movement theory that uh, derives from European Continental Philosophy and uh, and Sociology. So I was looking for a way to revitalize a discourse on European new social movements that began, I would say, uh, to really develop theoretically, in an interesting way, in the 80s. And I was looking for a case that would might update uh, this new social, new social movement uh, theory. And uh, I also draw, by the way, from Alberto Melucci, who wrote a very uh, influential text called Nomads of the Present, which I think shares a lot of similarities with um, new social movement theory of the continental style. So, I am really working with Frankfurt School ideas um, that have been updated by Jürgen Habermas. And whereas most media literature uses Habermas and the theory of communicative action to describe, um, you know, uh, the liberal public sphere as a as a as a as a key construct, I really focus more on what Habermas pulls over directly uh, from Horkheimer and Adorno and Marcuse and uh, some of the older older school Frankfurt school uh, thinkers, particularly this notion of cultural colonization of the life world, I find to be a very appropriate Metaphor and explanation for what we see uh, on a on a on a macro level in terms of the conversion of the internet over, you know, from a real life world to uh, much more of a commercial delivery platform for um, for for media companies uh, locked out for other uses, uh, single single purpose single functionality um, and. The theory of communicative action describes the life world as basically being uh, a communicative resource for us, uh, where we're able to develop our identities, uh, find social solidarities, develop our communicative competencies, and, and grow, um, grow as, uh, as uh, well-grounded, socially grounded people. Um, and that life world is perpetually under some erosion or attack uh, by systemic pressures that at the root of it uh, uh, are responsible uh, for attacking the life world due to, uh, due to the need for the system to grow. So the growth imperative of capitalism and all of its attendant um, functions. And I'm speaking very broadly now, but I look in very specific ways at which the pirates identify cultural colonization of the life world, and then they attach a policy objective to each risk that they discover uh, and work on it uh, very, very attentively uh, in order to, uh, in order to uh, protect what they see as a vital resource for communication in the information age. Um, so I described the pirates as essentially behaving like an environmentalist organization on behalf of online culture. Uh, and we see many of the same um, colonization threats recognized by ecologists uh, from previous decades, um, you know, describing the same Colonization pressures that are impinging on the natural environment. And what are those pressures? Well, obviously, uh, at this stage in the game, it's global warming um, and carbon emissions. And I would also uh, say that uh, uh, radiation from uh, nuclear energy is another one of those issues. Radiation and nuclear power, by the way, was one of those technologies and risks uh, that divided the early ecological movement into uh, ecology, deep ecology and environmentalist strains because environmentalists tend to find technological solutions to human problems uh, whereas ecologists are much more uh, skeptical about technological solutions to man-made problems.
1: And so what's the what 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 is the uh the parallel there with the uh with the pirate party uh there how, how does it match up I hear a train do you yeah, I, do. <laughs> I do it's uh, it's all right though we still hear you loud and clear
0: that's great. I live uh, very close to an old form of uh, technology. Oh, there it is. The diesel is. engine.
1: <laughs> <It is coming. laughs> hey, uh, destroying the, uh, the atmosphere as we speak.
0: <laughs> well, let me preface my answer by saying that the pirates have not yet fissured uh, in a way that would allow us really to see what... Um, Mm. You know, a uh, a pragmatic version of their purist philosophy might look like. But if we were to speculate, um, we might have Internet purists who say that uh, no forms of uh, uh, domestic state surveillance are uh, legitimate online, that they're all privacy risks inherently. And then you might have some pragmatists who say, Hang on a minute. You know there are some uh, legitimate reasons for the state to be uh, uh, surveilling online communication. So that might be that might be one fraction point. Mm.
1: Does it seem as though the the future of the party, at least the way you just describe it, there is more along that pi- uh, privacy angle as opposed to the intellectual property? Have they been melded successfully? I mean, they seem to me to be uh, conceptually separate in some ways, but they're they're working to bring them together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that the activist work on on cyber liberties that that the world reads uh, from Lessig and others um, implicitly, perhaps, constructs a tripartite version of digital rights: free speech, privacy, and access to information and culture, um, and that structure, uh, that unity of digital rights, as I call it, has held up at least in U.S. discourse about cyber liberties. And in fact, when you find uh, activist organizations from civil society groups, um, for instance, uh, going going to lobby on behalf of privacy, you know, you know they end up also defending those same. Uh, Proposals and, uh, and bills that promote other cyber liberties as well. So the movement really hangs together around those three. But it's easy to see how, you know, there could be con- conf- conflicting impetuses between privacy and free speech, for instance, or between access to information and, and privacy. And I'll just offer one example which is a very mainstream example in Europe right now. Um, The uh, A a prominent European parliamentarian um, called a year and a half ago for the right to be forgotten in Europe. In other words, Hmm. as a user of Facebook or Twitter or perhaps another online service that persistently stores your identity, shouldn't we be able, as consumers and citizens of the information society, to access a big delete button, uh, which would effectively erase our participation evidence of our participation in, in one of these communities? Many Europeans seem to think that's essential for digital privacy these days. But what does that do for a historian's right to access the historical record, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if people are deleting themselves from digital history, uh, doesn't that, you know, threaten threaten the uh, retrievability of, uh, of of history from uh, from a historian's perspective? So we can come up with a matrix, probably, of potential conflicts between the uh, the three elements of um uh digital digital freedoms um, and I tried to do that as much as possible in the conclusion of pirate politics
1: mm. um it seems as though that the 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 entry point for the the pirate Party had had everything to do with the political system in Sweden, uh, and that we, we don't have a simpler a similar uh, parliamentary system. There's no uh, there's no easy access to that sort of high level of power that they were able to get uh, from so kind of a limited perspective. Uh, is there a pathway for this kind of thinking to become more mainstream in American politics, uh, or do you think that this is something that has to be done through Europe uh, if, at least first, if not only?
0: Yeah, well. I think uh, the United States is is uh, a generation behind the Europeans in terms of the the uh, public debate level of public debate and uh, deliberation about information policy issues. I mean, we really haven't touched it since we deregulated thoroughly in uh, the mid nineties. Uh, starting to become uh, salient as we learn more and more about the involvement of the state in um, in uh, perpetual and seemingly uh, um, universal uh, pan-spectric surveillance. Uh, and this is a topic, by the way, that pirate politics doesn't address. Mm. But because we don't have uh, access to parliamentary negotiations um, such as what your, your Europeans enjoy uh, we are really in basically crippled in, in terms of taking any uh, political decisions about cyber liberties right now I mean we can't even pass a budget in this country so uh, I find it difficult to imagine the United States innovating on the pirate model now Canada is another story, and the Pirate Party of Canada is a very interesting case, worth a great deal of new research. And also in the English-speaking world, the Pirate Party UK uh, is, uh, is, is, is quite active and influential. But I'm afraid we're sunk politically as, uh, uh, as a source of new ideas uh, or, uh, or even any, any real action.
1: Uh, are there any lessons that us us uh, poor trapped Americans can take from the success of the of the party? party? <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, I think the lessons are that um, alternative visions of the information society are not only possible but they 're also um, they 're also being implemented by activists uh, young activists, and um, the fact that a generation of internet users who have been you know uh, disparaged by older people as being inactive and disinterested and detached uh, you know they're really trying to take over their parents' generation of leadership in the area of information policy, and they see the Internet as being their domain, you know, where their their influence and their, um, you know, their interests are at stake. And I think that uh, we can always learn from people like that. And uh, even if it's not, uh, you know, it might need to be more direct action and activism from uh, pirates in the U.S., but uh, in order to get things done. But um, we can certainly take motivation, uh, if not instruction, from what's going on in Sweden and Germany.
1: Mm. Uh, is there a hacktivist uh, element to, the, to what is going on in Sweden and Germany, or is it able to, to go through that, that standard political process so it's less necessary?
0: Right. Well, I think, I think hacktivism is not as necessary as it had been. And, and that's one of the interesting things about the maturation of this movement into a political, into political engagement with the formal system. But activism, I think, always plays a role because, you know, hackers are tinkering and innovating with, uh, with software code as speech acts uh, for making political statements. And, um, these statements are becoming bolder and they're becoming more complicated and they're becoming, uh, uh, they're finding broader global audiences. So there will always be a role for hacktivism, even
1: in Sweden. Mm. Uh, and if, if, uh, kind of back to a previous question, but but if if there is, you know, if, let's say I'm totally persuaded by your perspective that this is uh, uh, the pirate parties are sort of anti-colonial in all the best ways, they're ecological in all the best ways. Uh, on the micro level, is there something uh, less than hacktivism that I can do? Is there something? Uh, uh, I mean, wh- wh- is, is there any action that we can take as individuals that that's sort of not putting ourselves at risk or, or illegal?
0: Sure, I mean, I think becoming. Becoming educated about, for instance, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership might be uh, a good a good exercise for all of us right about now because it's another example of one of these plurilateral agreements negotiated in secret. By negotiators who've all signed non-disclosure agreements, Um, the only reason we're learning about it is through WikiLeaks. (laughs) You know, it's the most illegitimate, undemocratic, you know, stuff we've seen since since the Acta. Um, And uh, you know, the more people who become aware of, uh, not only the. Uh, the negotiations of these particular agreements, but you know the the underlying rationales for them and why our politicians are actually uh, pursuing these and allowing them to be negotiated uh, behind our backs. I mean, these are this is all information we we need to be familiar with, uh, regardless of the fact that uh, you know we can't vote digital rights up and down in a congressional session. Um, we can still do things that affect digital rights, perhaps more indirectly.
1: Well, uh, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time, and and thank you so much for these considered uh, answers. You've offered quite a few possible areas for future research that uh, uh, scholars could take up. Are you yourself going to be uh, pursuing this project further, or, or are you looking somewhere else with your next project?
0: I would love to go back and take a look at some of the smaller and younger pirate parties, maybe in Finland and perhaps in Eastern European countries. So at this moment, I'm exploring ways to do that, and I'm welcoming and encouraging uh, expressions of interest in collaborating further. Mm.
1: So, so what you're saying is that we, uh, if we want to advance this, this effort, we could also write a, write, a, write a grant for you to apply to.
0: <laughs> would you please
1: <laughs> uh, well if anybody's out there and then is interested uh, Patrick, Patrick's looking for, for both, uh, both collaborators and support but
0: uh, uh, I'll, uh...
1: <laughs> we, uh, we very much appreciate your, uh, your, your time here Patrick uh, we look forward to uh, reading the book when it comes out it's coming out this January from MIT Press right January 2014 right Okay, so that'll be available from MIT Press, and I'm sure you'll be able to find it on all sorts of uh, uh, other distribution uh, outlets. Uh, Patrick uh, Burkhardt of Texas AM University, thank you very much uh, for the interview. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt.